the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week we go back in time and look at the old days of the WWF, not the glory days, the uh, not the Attitude Era, the middle ground, the new generation era here uh, of the World Wrestling Federation, broken down by your buddy the Chadster on the TMPT Empire Airwaves. Uh, seven years strong celebrating this past week of Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling podcast debated with John back and forth to which the actual anniversary date was. And we were both kind of around the same time, uh, but wishing him and myself a very happy seventh anniversary to see how far this thing has evolved since we started back in 2015 is unbelievable. Um, I cherish every interview, every show, every moment we had as a duo and also as singles but every uh, week, no doubt, great content coming out of these airwaves still seven years later and just trying to do something different and just trying to uh, entertain as much as humanly possible, which is something this show has uh, done. And I've been very proud of how New Generation Declassified has evolved since I started it kind of like out of the blue in the, uh, the summer of 2020. And uh, I have loved how this thing has blossomed. And I really love how it's evolved, and I really love how it's uh, making its way into the uh, hearts and minds of some of those that want to go back and watch this new generation classic content because it's uh, it's very cool to go back and watch some of this stuff because if you haven't seen it, it's new to you, and that's what makes it perfect. Uh, but I have to uh, acknowledge, and I want to just bring this up, and I'll bring it up at the end, of course. Uh, I announced last week on the show as we celebrated Monday Night Raw's uh, anniversary uh, a week earlier, we uh, w- had our great good friend, Mike Freeland, join us. And uh, I announced the uh, Coliseum cast or Coliseum chat or whatever it's going to finally be called um, that will debut next week, once a month, uh, taking the place of New Generation Declassified here on the TMPT Empire. Uh, looking back at Coliseum video, at kind of on a recollecting journey myself. So we might go through new generation content as well on the Coliseum uh, podcast, but it's going to be uh, something else. It's been very fun to put this thing together because uh, it's it's just different than how I would present this show. Sometimes with this show, I sometimes like to just flick the mic on and kind of talk and just let the words flow out of my mouth as I see a certain topic. With this Coliseum one, it's a little different. I might add a little bit more structure to it. Um, I see this as a very specialized project, and I'm trying to get the right minds and the right people who had some Coliseum video influence, as well as uh, collectors and, and people who have dealt on the other side of Coliseum video, um, getting their input as well. And uh, one thing I can say is there's definitely a clamoring for content like this, because if you're in my age bracket 
and you're in this uh, era that we grew up in uh, as fans when you were learning what wrestling was, you know, Coliseum Video played a huge part, and the whole video store experience played a huge part in growing up uh, during the 80s and the 90s, and uh, Coliseum Video is just right smack in the middle of all that. So really looking forward to uh, diving deep into it. You know, we'll talk about how you collect, you know, how you watch them, what was your favorite, which was the, you know, the the one that you thought should have been made. You know, we're going to talk to some people who had um, key roles in designing some of the international releases. So uh, a lot of cool stuff on the way. And uh, again, to work it into the seven years of the TMPT empire, that's what we've always done, man. We've just always really gone out and tried to to give you content that you might not be able to find anywhere else. You know, other people do tons of podcasts, but we try to make these a little bit more specific. And I'm very proud of our body of work uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, but on this week's show, I kind of want to run down who were like the MVPs of that Monday Night Raw era, but from the main eventer. Uh, point of view and I was looking at all the main events of Monday Night Raw and I was looking at some of the biggest matches of Monday Night Raw and some of them might not <laughs> might not be what you think you know it's not going to be every show uh, highlighted by the WWF champion versus the top contender some of the main events were lesser matches on the card kind of presented in the middle but it was the main event. Um, it was almost uh, kind of funny how we said last week, The Undertaker and Damian Demento was technically the main event of Monday Night Raw's first episode, but there was so much stuff that happened after the actual match that you almost forgot who won the contest because so much stuff happened after the match had completed. So I'm going to look at some of that today. Um, and this, again, is just such a great part of doing the show is being able to go back and watch so much stuff that it's easy to consume, it's short to watch, but nonetheless, it still packs a pretty powerful punch. And I always kind of lean towards 93 when I talk about uh, Monday Night Raw because it's like, you know, Monday Night Raw was such a, a great show, but some of the years that stand out to you just on the, you know, the surface are 93, you know, 90, late 97, 98 as a whole, 2000, and maybe fast forward to like 2005, 2006, um, some of those in between, you know, 94, 95, even 96, you know, 99 had its moments, you know, 2001 had its moments. There's two, there's two or three real marquee years of the show. And 93 really, really, to me, just shines uh, heads, heads above the rest. It's, um, it's packed with stuff, but it's like it's, it's very uh, deceptive because you don't think it because you're thinking, oh, I'm just seeing jobber matches. I'm just seeing squashes, you know, oh, I'm seeing uh, uh, Coco Beware get squashed by Yokozuna, or I'm seeing, you know, uh, uh, PJ Walker getting crushed by Lex Luger. It's not all you saw. There were some pretty good marquee matches in there and not highlighted by the same guys. It was kind of a lion's share of the uh, the time in the ring. And, and that's kind of one of the, the things I want to focus on. Um, this year, especially if you look at 1993, and maybe we'll just stay in 93. I don't know. We'll see how it takes us. Maybe we'll delve a little bit into uh, to 94, see uh, maybe who some of those um, MVPs were of these uh, main event matches, these marquee matches that were on um, Monday Night Raw. I, I, I point you to the direction of, and this is almost like a Cliff Notes version of, of your early days of Raw. The Raw beginning set, it was released, I believe, in like 2008, 2009. 
uh, WWE Raw, the beginning seasons one and two, uh, at the time was the first real consumable amount of Monday Night Raw that they gave you on WWE home video. Um, which, by the way, rest in peace, WWE home video. But this was the first real sh- just collection of matches they gave you that wasn't from a pay per view you know, a WrestleMania or Royal Rumble or a Survivor Series box set. This was the first taste they gave you of the past. Uh, There was a Raw 1000 or excuse me, Raw 10 year anniversary uh, DVD that came out in 2003. That was not very good. It was very rushed. It showed the uh, the 10 year Raw awards that they they had at the uh, WWE uh, New York restaurant, which was just not very good and showed a lot of moments, but they didn't show matches and segments. And this set did. But the thing is, they call it Raw the Beginning Seasons 1 and 2. Three quarters of this thing is 1993. It's not until you get into the tail end of Disc 3 do you actually, or excuse me, the, uh, the, the beginning part of Disc 3 that you actually get to 1994. It's like, you know, uh, meat and potatoes. Majority of it, and including the extras disc, which you remember back in the day, we all loved our extras, uh, relied heavily on the 1993 uh, Raw content. So if you look at some of the, the superstars of this, um, you know, the, these early days of Raw, you know, guys that jump off the page to you are a Bret Hart, right? So obviously Bret Hart, the, the maybe the leader of the new generation, the guy who held the belt the most during the new generation. Uh, one match that stuck, sticks out to me on this DVD, uh, actually just watched before I came on the airwaves, uh, ironically, I wasn't even meaning to watch it. It just came through my timeline it was a uh, Bret Hart versus fuck two who go on to be Rikishi match from Monday night raw. Now you're asking why would this match be highlighted and why would this match get such a focus? It's very good. And for a television match, this match is, is absolutely, um, and, and in 1993 showcasing something you weren't really supposed to notice back in the day. And it's that, wow, one of these Samoan guys can actually work really well. And it's about an eight minute match, um, you know, filled with the entrances. So you take about two minutes off of that. Brett is in phenomenal shape, but so is Fatu. And for him to be Rikishi only five years later and be so large and so big, he's so agile as a guy who could do the things that he was doing and the flying off the rope. Uh, one thing that's kind of peculiar, Brett's got a gigantic gash on his nose and i don't really think they go much into it uh in the match but uh brett uh working with some sort of um uh, laceration on the side of his nose that it looks like almost like a burn mark it's so uh so large uh but they just they they have they're so crisp and it's got the cool uh feel we were talking about on last week's show where you know the manhattan center is much like that ecw arena vibe it's a raw crowd to use the pun you know, it's uh, it's the New York City ro- raucous, rowdy group of wrestling fans that they want to see good matches, but they also want to be goofy. I mean, there's guys in the front row who are running around with signs and trying to get on a hard camera. Uh, but just a crisp, crisp match between Bret Hart and Fatu that, you know, it's not um, it, it's really actually I mean, I said it's, eight, it's about 14 minutes if you take out the entrances. Um and the, the, you know, the shenanigans at the end, but it just, it plays a lot into the strengths of Fatu and a lot of the power moves, but then, you know, the agility of, uh, you know, Brett to move out of the way at some points. And the same thing with Fatu 
how he's coming off the top rope. And it just, it's, it's, it's a very nice collection of master craftsmanship by Brett and Fatu. So this is just one that I would point to at the time, because you think Bret Hart, you think, okay, it's going to be a great match, but maybe not necessarily with somebody that you would expect him to have uh, a great match with one match. I do want to point out that was actually before this in the timeline you know, could hold a place as the top mat, you know, main event match in the early stages of Monday Night Raw. One that I think gets overlooked a lot. Uh, and it's Mr. Perfect versus Ric Flair, the loser leaves town match from the, the about third or fourth edition of Monday Night Raw. It's January 25th, uh, 1993 edition of Monday Night Raw. We referenced it last week. Um, this is the actually, it is it's the third edition of Monday Night Raw. It's right after the Royal Rumble. This is. The night Ric Flair is done with the WWF on television and uh, you wouldn't see him on WCW TV for, for a little bit, but this was the blow off of their partnership, the executive consultant, the whole thing with survivor series in 1992. Uh, it's a great match. And I got to be honest with you at the time, you know, in 93, I, from what I recalled, I thought Flair would win that match. I would have never thought um, uh, Mr. Perfect was going to win uh, but what a great match to have as those uh, early Monday Night Raw, you know, main event spotlights. What what else is going to tell you a show is important than a match of this caliber? This is a pay-per-view match right here. This could have been on the Royal Rumble. Honestly, as much as I love the Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty uh, Intercontinental Championship feud um, when Jannetty came back in late 92, the match that they had at, at the Royal Rumble wasn't their best. This could have filled the spot. And maybe they have the blow off of Michaels and Janetti on Raw because it wasn't that good compared to this. And it gets uh, gets overlooked. And, you know, if we're going to make a list or we're going to look back and say, what's the top main event of this? I'm going to say right now, this is the leader in the clubhouse because this is a phenomenal uh, pay-per-view level contest that was being given away on free TV, almost breaking the model at the time. Because now we see huge main event matches on television all the time. We did not see that. Unless it was a Saturday night's main event. But you know what? Saturday night's main event was also a little cheap. Because you would think they were big matches. You would think it was a huge deal. But were you really clamoring for, you know, Warrior and Hogan versus Earthquake and Dino Bravo? I wasn't. I didn't like that at all. I would rather have just seen a one-on-one match between Hogan and Earthquake. But they didn't do it that way back then so yeah this is a, a leader in the clubhouse for me this is an absolute gem mr perfect and uh rick flair loser leaves town match 1993 again manhattan center rowdy raucous new york city crowd what a great venue to uh to see a uh a wrestling match in in the early 90s um moving forward and i guess you would call this um you know a, a, a highlight of the career in the WWF of Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I've referenced this before. There was a few weeks story arc of Shawn Michaels and Hacksaw Jim Duggan having a uh, brutal uh, couple of matches. Uh, I believe it was two matches in a row. It all took place on um, Monday Night Raw. It started with just a one-on-one -on -one match and evolved into uh, what I think was a, a great, great contest. It's a lumberjack match between Shawn Michaels and uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. The uh, participants on the outside of the ring, the superstars are dressed in their red uh, lumberjack attire. 
uh, except for one, and that would be uh, the mighty Yokozuna, who was isolated all to himself uh, on one side of the ring, furthering the feud between Hacksaw and Yokozuna, because after Hacksaw had been taken off a of TV by Yokozuna earlier in the year and completely decimated, uh, it was Yokozuna who put him out, and it was on his rise to uh, the world championship. A great callback by Duggan, the first chance that he got to actually get his hands on hack uh, to get his hands on Yokozuna, he gets out of the ring and he starts to uh, you know lay in the haymakers and it's it's awesome. I absolutely love this match. Um, Shawn Michaels is dressed in street clothes, you know, so he's got his great uh, uh, Shawn Michaels red boots on, and uh, oh, just an unbelievable um, spectacle. Looking at the, the the beef outside the ring, these WWF superstars, you know, you're seeing your Bam Bams, you're seeing Mr. Hughes. There's nothing like seeing Mr. Hughes in his full Mr. Hughes attire with a red lumberjack vest over it. Also, what uh, Typhoon's out there. You got Bob Backlund's out there. I mean, it is it's a great collection of stars. But um, you know, it's given uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan this time to shine, and you know, there was a glimmer of hope as you're a young fan that Hacksaw Jim Duggan is going to finally win a belt. He's going to win the Intercontinental Championship. But, uh, you know, if it wasn't for that dastardly uh, Yokozuna, you might have seen a title run by the, uh, the the old hacker. But, no, it was Yokozuna that cost uh, Shawn Michaels uh, – or, excuse me, Hacksaw the match. Shawn Michaels retains uh, one of the, the more uh, built-up two-week feuds for the WWF during this time, but it's great. I absolutely love this. This was a, uh, a wonderful um, main event uh, in uh, 1993, May 10th. Uh, the following week, May 17th, featured what I've always said the two most uh, marquee uh, moments in the early days of Monday Night Raw. We did basically uh, like two or three shows talking about the kid and, and Razor Ramon and the real main event being, I think, the first match of the show, Marty Jannetty. And Shawn Michaels with the upset of all upsets where Marty Jannetty beat Shawn Michaels. That could also sneak onto this list. I'm going to put that down too. Uh, that could also sneak on the list. But eh, I don't know. I'm still really leaning towards Flair and Mr. Perfect. Um, another really great main event. It was a King of the Ring qualifying match. This was May 24th, 1993. Mr. Perfect, common ground here. And Doink the Clown. This was Matt Bourne's Doink the Clown, which always... This match is one of the reasons why I always get annoyed at the criticism of the Doink character. Again, another previous New Generation Declassified episode where uh, Chris Pavone, my great good friend, uh, former WWE superstar, Kalen Croft and I look at the Matt Bourne Doink and how psychotic it was. Um, you don't think of a guy dressed in a clown suit having a stellar main event caliber match. Well, this was a, a big one. And how they built up those early King of the Ring uh, matches, those qualifiers on television were very, very long, two-segment, um, just clinics. They were absolute gem of uh, of a pairing. Matt Bourne and Mr. Perfect, a lot of catch-as-catch-can uh, wrestling. And again, you're not expecting a psychotic guy in a clown suit to be uh, chain wrestling. But nonetheless, you know, you got it. And this was actually a rematch from, I believe, a Superstars match where um, I think Doink gets a second chance, and that's why Mr. Perfect's in. Uh, we know in the King of the Ring 93, he would have a, uh, a great second-round match with Bret Hart in their rematch from the 91 SummerSlam. 
but yeah, this is fantastic. Uh, Mr. Perfect, really, I guess maybe Mr. Perfect is the early MVP of uh, Monday Night Raw. You know, in that summer in 93, Mr. Perfect would have an intercontinental title feud with Shawn Michaels that he would not come out on the upper hand of, but I think politics kind of played into that. And uh, he was putting on some damn good matches before he was gone in uh, the fall of 93. Um, how could we forget as we move forward? Uh, we mentioned it a few weeks ago, main event of the July 26th, 1993 match. Uh, 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 excuse me, July 26th, 1993, Monday Night Raw, Bam Bam Bigelow and Bret Hart. Uh, we know how it ends. Jerry Lawler interrupts from the uh, the heavens and distracts Brett. There's a little bit of uh, count-out shenanigans, and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow raises his hand. But nonetheless, great match between the two of them. Brett always said he could have a great match with anybody, pointed to Bam Bam how Bam Bam could have a good match with anybody. And and much like the Fatu match, Bam Bam just does so much stuff in the ring, uh, makes Bret Hart look unbelievable and uh this is um, one of my favorites we've talked about this not too long ago um there's another great uh <laughs> there's another show francine went to as i talk about the july 26th episode where she talks about the headbanger or the headbangers the quebecers and the steiner brothers well she went to the quebecers and the steiner brothers uh tag team title change in 1993 where the uh the canadian province rules were the uh, the agreed upon uh, stipulation uh, around the time that this was going on? Um, Jacques Rougeau and uh, Rick Steiner were having a little bit of problems, and Scott were having a little bit of problems backstage. And uh, on the September thirteenth, nineteen ninety three episode, um, the Quebecers defeat the Steiner brothers to be the tag champs. When I believe it was an over the top rope uh, issue. And a use of a hockey stick that uh, would lead to this title change. But Jacques, and to tie into our seven-year anniversary of the two-man power trip, uh, detailed this in one of our interviews with Jacques years and years ago. How he did not get along with the Steiner brothers and how they tortured him backstage. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why is because they were not happy with having to lose the tag straps to the Quebecers, who again had a very, very heavy influence on the fall of 93, and they are all over those fall 93 episodes of Monday Night Raw. And, uh, you know, multiple tag team championship runs in these uh, couple of months for the, the Quebecers. I mean, what can you say? They were a perfect team at that time. They were an absolute um, great pairing. You know, the chemistry off the charts. You know, the look of the Mounties, but not really, you know, the Mountie. They're, the, they're not the Mounties. That, that Canadian Royal Mounted uniform just looks so great on both Pierre and Jacques. But Jacques is the veteran. Just uh, I, I can't say enough about Jacques Rougeau as a performer. And, and in that team, I loved him in the Rougeau brothers with his brother Raymond. And kind of on a new generation declassified, uh, you know, less tangent here, more in the golden era in the 80s. Jacques and Raymond, when they came in as a uh, babyface tag team in the 1985-1986 uh, time uh, frame, had great matches. They were just no flair. No, there was no sizzle. It was just two guys in red tights having nice, flashy matches. You know, a little bit of that French-Canadian uh, influence. You know, well, some, some interesting little head-scissor moves. But when they kind of integrated the personalities that they had, 
you know, Raymond, the straight man and Jacques is kind of goofy into the fabulous Rougeau brothers. It really, it developed what Jacques was as a, a, a kind of like just, you know, smart, swarmy heel. You want to see him get his ass kicked. Well, in the Quebecers where he's the veteran of the team, it's like he could take all that, that, that goofiness he had as the fabulous Rougeau and a little bit more of the polished nature of some of those tactics when they first came in were a straight tag team and marry it together and then influence the Mountie character into it just is like the perfect storm of everything Jacques did up to that point. But I loved him and PCO as a, uh, as a tag team. And Pierre was so young at the time. Uh, I could fly do that cannonball off the top rope. Just a great, great team. So this is another good one. The Quebecers uh, defeating the Steiner brothers. And I believe it's called the Canadian province rules. Um, to keep the or to win the tag team championship. Uh, this is one I've talked about uh, for basically two and a half years or two years. I've been doing this show. The Intercontinental Championship uh, finals, there was a battle royal, and in, in the beginning of October 1993, featuring a lot of WWF superstars. Um, and uh, the two finalists in that match would go on to compete for the Intercontinental Championship. And if anybody knows me, they know the kind of insane Rick, excuse me, Rick Martell fan that I am. And this was the first time I thought that Rick Martell was going to become the WWF Intercontinental Champion uh, because it came down to him and Razor Ramon. And by golly, I'll never, I'll never live with myself to know that he did not get it. But the match is phenomenal. It is about 15, 16 minute match. On Monday Night Raw, given the full treatment of the ring girls, the presentation of the uh, the belt. But, you know, like we say, it doesn't have to be the main event going on last. It was kicking off the show. Um, you got Bobby Heenan, you got Vince McMahon, you got Macho Man Randy Savage on commentary, and just the entire glitz and glamour of the Razor Ramon entrance. He's got the glistening gold. He's got the, uh, you know, the hair on point. But... Like I, I, I say again, I'm such a big Rick Martell fan. Rick Martell gets that glamorous first entrance, you know, that model music hits and he was in phenomenal shape again, as he always was in, in 1993. And there's just that little part of me that wishes you could re fantasy book this and have Rick Martell uh, win that intercontinental championship. It would have been great as the model. Uh, and the Intercontinental Championship. I don't care if it was for a cup of coffee. Give it to him for two months. I don't care. Give it back to Razor at the Royal Rumble. This would have been really cool to uh, to have him do that. And I really, uh, <laughs> I do love this match. You know, this is a personal favorite. So you know what? I might have to slot this one in on the uh, the old Listeruni and give this one the nod. Now this is going into the leaderboard because uh, I think this is actually my favorite of all of them. I, if I was going to be so impartial. As to say, I have a favorite. I got to say, it's probably this one. This is uh, the Monday Night Raw Prime Cuts. Digging into my Coliseum video time. The uh, the first compilation they released of Monday Night Raw's uh, best moments. The cover, Rick Martell with Razor Ramon in the Boston Crab. So, come on. Suck on that for all you Rick Martell uh, haters that call him the under you-know-what word. Please, you go watch his body of work. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, finally, how about these couple again, we'll stick in 1993 and maybe I'll give you a taste of 94. I'll be nice. Um, you get a razor remote and diesel match in, uh, November 93. Eh, nothing really to write home about. 
I think it's the first televised um, uh, match of the two of them. Uh, <laughs> we'll go on to, you know, reinvent the business just a few years later. Uh, you also get an early uh, more click-on-click violence. The one, two, three kid versus Shawn Michaels. This was on the December 6th, 1993 edition of Monday Night Raw. This match itself is significant because it is right before the final exit of Bobby the Brain Heenan as he is thrown out of the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie, New York by Gorilla Monsoon. Uh, the match itself is, uh, you know, again, yeah, it's it's what you would expect. It's a, uh, you know, it's a Shawn Michaels in his prime. And, I mean, maybe he had, he might have had two primes at this point, but uh, Shawn Michaels in that, that just absolute peak of being the asshole bad guy that he was in 92, 93, taking on uh, the one, two, three kid who had such a banner year. And they're both in, you know, pretty good shape. Sean's a little, a little puffy, but still, this was in the era where he was using the super kick as somewhat of a uh, setup move for that side suplex that I still don't get. Like as we talked about with Freeland last week, um, but you know, it's also uh, it it does kind of lead into where we would see. The uh, oh, and you know what? I got to correct myself. I said Mid Hudson Civic Center, Poughkeepsie, New York. It's actually my favorite uh, venue of these '93 Raws, not in the Manhattan Center, in the Westchester County Center, the Great Westchester County Center in Westchester, New York. It's uh, it's a great venue. I've seen many of shows there, and uh, this is where this Monday Night Raw takes place. Um, match I think goes through two or three commercial breaks. It's very long. And ends in a, uh, I think it's this is this one is in a count out. It leads to Razor Ramon coming out, getting knocked out by Diesel and uh, Shawn Michaels executing a razor's edge on uh, Razor Ramon in his finest black, red, white checkered parrot-looking T-shirt and blue um, pants. Gets a razor's edge by Shawn Michaels on the outside. The Westchester County Center, for those of you that have never been there for an actual show, does not uh, appear to be a big building. They use the space so graciously in this uh, Monday Night Raw taping. And I've been to plenty of house shows in the county center where, you know, the entranceway is not very big. And I can remember uh, specifically working when I worked there in 2006, going to a show and seeing Randy Orton um, only a few feet away and just being like, man, this guy is, he is right on top of the crowd. There is no space for these guys to essentially walk, but for the Monday night Raw set, the old uh, favorite of ours, the rainbow color WWF entrance, it gave it enough space maybe for the lights to not make uh, some of those patrons sweat on the outside. Uh, let's peek in 94 really quick. If we can, we have, let's see. <laughs> it says Bret Hart versus Bruce Pritchard on the, uh, the the DVD. It is not. It is Dr. Tom Pritchard, great good friend of the two-man power trip uh, empire, John and Dr. Tom doing their thing. Uh, that is a great match. And that is a, a, that's February 21st, 1994. I want to say they had two matches. This one is, uh, is definitely... Um, it's good. It's not as, it's definitely not the one I'm thinking of. Uh, this is the one that we'll end on. Okay. Because this is one that I, I always felt was, uh, overlooked in terms of some significance. 
Um, one of uh, the final championship matches that the Macho Man Randy Savage would ever get took place on the February 28th, 1994 edition of Monday Night Raw. This was part of the Crush storyline. This was part of the Randy Savage loses his last shot at the WWF uh, championship. And this is now why the Vendetta with Crush is even more personal. And one of my favorite New Generation episodes I've ever done was analyzing the promo that the Macho Man cuts in an empty arena with Vince McMahon talking about this match specifically and how he, he will never forgive Crush for costing him his last shot or what could have been his last shot at the WWF Championship. Again, February 28th, I said 26, 1994, Yokozuna and the Macho Man. Famously, Yokozuna and the Macho Man, the final two in the 1993 Royal Rumble. We still don't know why. Uh, he tries to pin him after he comes off the rope with the uh, the elbow smash. But nonetheless, uh, he's eliminated by Yokozuna. And it's just, uh, you know, Macho Man, so high octane still at this point in uh, 93 to think that they wanted to wind him down. I mean, he's in uh, phenomenal shape, quick as a whip. He takes an elbow from the big man very early that looks like it almost uh, knocks his teeth out. And had to feel like shit, uh, even for a macho man like Randy Savage. It had to feel somewhat uh, <laughs> somewhat disastrous. Um, but a lot of outside interference, you know, Jim Cornette getting involved. Um, you know, macho man nearly winning, but Crush just coming in to break up the count, causing the disqualification. It was, uh, yeah, it was something else. But Bret Hart makes the save, of course, because... He would have his uh, ongoing shenanigans with uh, Yokozuna. So almost like you'd love to see a Bret Hart and Randy Savage versus Crush and Yoko match on that lead up to uh, to WrestleMania. But the heels go up in this one. The heels uh, walk away on top. Uh, Lex Luger does end up making the save as well to help get the, uh, the, the bad guys out. But still, the damage is done. And it makes Luger look pretty good. But Bret and uh, Randy Savage got their butts handed to them by Yoko and Crush. So uh, there's that. But look, I mean, the, if, that there's some matches to go back and watch if you want to check out main events of those early Monday Night Raws. Out of all those, you know, and if you're going to say who, look, I didn't mention The Undertaker once, so Undertaker can't be brought up on this list. Razor Ramon, you know, it's such a, a, a great name from this era, maybe one of the top, you know, personalities created specifically in this era that I think had the, some of the most success of it. I, I got to lean towards razor and Rick Martel keeping that top spot as, as my personal favorite main event of the early Monday night Raws and maybe having the best match. Now, if you're a flair fan, if you're a flair Mark and you think that flair, everything he does is perfect. You're going to like the Mr. Perfect match from January. But if you were going to put a gun to my head, which please don't, it's just wrestling. I'm going to say Martel and Razor Ramon is the uh, the marquee main event match of the early days of Monday Night Raw. If you want to argue it, you want to argue the Flair match, you want to argue Michaels and Janetti, you want to argue the Kid and Razor, you want to argue the Steiners and Quebecers, uh, I'm a big boy. I can hear it, but I'm going to definitely say it's Martel and Razor Ramon. Uh, most points to that because Rick Martel is a freaking god of professional wrestling, and uh, he was never under... That word, he was never over that word. He was 
perfectly rated in terms of uh, everything he did in the ring, according to your old buddy, the Chadster. So let's wrap it up for today. Let's get out of here for this week. Remember, next week, the Coliseum cast or Coliseum chat, or we'll get it a name. I'm not sure what it's going to be. But the first look back at Monday Night Raw, or excuse me, the first look back at the Coliseum video era, according to me, the guy who was raised on these videos and got into this industry basically because of them. So they're to blame, and we're going to dive into every aspect of it beginning next week. Cannot freaking wait to get this rolling, and I hope everyone who's on this new generation journey comes on the Coliseum journey back in time as well. Uh, so if you want to follow me, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter. Uh, on Instagram, it's at IB Exclusives. Please come and check out my website, IBExclusives.com. There you can get the perfectly rated T-shirt, uh, of course, featured on the uh, huge and monumental podcast, Get My Go. Uh, the perfectly rated T-shirt as well as all my autograph signings, including some dynamite, dynamite names, Killer Cross, Brian Danielson, Jake the Snake Roberts, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and so many more over there. I got a huge one coming with Wrestling Ties in the next uh, couple of days, so keep your eyes on IB Exclusives. For this website, it is tmptempire.com. All the podcasts under the TMPT umbrella you can find at tmptempire.com to include the New Generation spinoff this week, uh, the Triple Threat Podcast. If you like what I talk about on New Generation Declassified, the Triple Threat is an uh, absolute companion piece to everything we talk about here on this show because we go back and watch three matches from the Dean Douglas era that Shane has not seen since 1995 to include the big uh, snafu and the big uh, moment that really led to his demise in the WWF and, and where he just turned the corner in wanting out the uh, October 1995 In Your House Intercontinental title uh, forfeiting by Shawn Michaels and then subsequent loss to Razor Ramon. So we detail that on the Triple Threat podcast on Vince Russo's channel attitude. Go to russosbrand.com for that. And of course, the last one, the Queen of Extreme, Francine and I, every week, eyes up here on Patreon, as well as the Creative Control Network. We just added an extra show on Creative Control. Uh, we're calling it a flashback. So come and join us there. Uh, again, always. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, seven years on the TMPT Empire. I couldn't ask for uh, a great little uh, side thing as much as this. I uh, adore it. And we'll keep going and doing more shows. So for everybody here. Oh, wait, it's just me. It's your buddy, the Chadster. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.